We didn't finish it. You have the new, the new lesson in 21. Hold on to it. We're going to get to it. But I wanted to finish up a few verses in uh, Acts chapter 20. And you know where I left off was Paul's uh, farewell to the Ephesian elders. And obviously Paul had spent three years in this, in this church, growing this church, uh, putting his life on the line. And now he, he was determined to go to Jerusalem, ultimately to go to Rome. He will not see these men again. And so he calls them for a, uh, a meeting, and they come to this meeting. Uh, not in Ephesus, but about 20 miles from Ephesus. And now he's giving them a sermon on what you need to know about the dangers facing the church. And what's so amazing about this is that what he's speaking about then 2,000 years ago is absolutely perfectly relevant for us today. The same dangers that the church faced then, we as a church face today. And when I say we as a church, I don't say First Baptists on Orange Blossom. I mean the worldwide church of God across denominational lines. All of the believers in Jesus Christ throughout the world. When we speak about the dangers to the church, we talk about that. Now, that doesn't mean that some of these dangers couldn't infect even local churches. They could. But when I speak on this, I speak in broader tones. So uh, turn, if you would, with me to verse 25 as he's in this oration speaking to them. Uh, telling him he just got done telling them that he's compelled by the Holy Spirit to go back to Jerusalem, not knowing what he f will face. Uh, but he knows it's not going to be good. And so in verse 25, he says, Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of of all men. And what we see is this is a common theme for Paul. It talks about being innocent of the blood of men, or when you, when you uh, reject the gospel of Jesus Christ after having it preached to you, he says that your blood is on your own head. So you see the seriousness of what we are involved with. We are involved in life and death, in the very dearest sense, life and death. And so we have to understand that when we go out and advance the gospel and talk to people about Jesus. It is the very essence of life and death. And so, continuing on in verse 27, For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. In other words, I didn't hold back. I didn't keep certain things from you because I didn't want to offend you. I gave you everything. I told you the entire will of God. And now he gives the warnings to the church. 28. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Jesus created the church. Man didn't create the church. The Holy Spirit puts people in place to be the overseers. And the role for the overseers is the role of shepherd. Shepherd. And so he's telling them to keep watch over the flock the way a shepherd would. Continuing on, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. And that's important. Church wasn't a man-made creation. It was created by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's what started the church age. 
And so I continuing on, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Savage wolves. Savage wolves. Savage wolves in this sense means individuals, but it also means doctrine. Uh, and I want to go back and draw your attention again to what he was concerned about. He was concerned about doctrine infiltrating its way into the church that was not consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you'll say, brother, how can this be? How can this be? This is only 25 years or so after Jesus uh, was crucified. Paul is around. He's writing. Peter's around. He's writing. John is around. He's writing. What? How can this be? Oh, it can be. It can be. And you're going to see how it can be in a letter that he wrote to the Colossians. And the Colossian church was a church that he established. Because what you see is that even during Paul's life, false doctrine infiltrated the church. And so when you see today false doctrine in, in, in the Christian work, when you turn on television and you see a wide array of evangelists speaking, and sometimes you'll say, gee, I never heard that preached in my church. And there's like a check in your spirit. There should be a check in your spirit, okay? There should be a check in your spirit. Or when you see some personality on television who claims to be a lifelong Christian, even better, a Baptist. Say, say, you know, I realized, I realized that I was wrong, that my church was wrong, you know. There is not just one way to God, there are a thousand ways to God. You see, don't you see what that is? All that is, is, is counterfeit theology. That's what that is, counterfeit theology. And it is everywhere, it is pervasive. And the most important thing that we need to hold on to is good theology, this is important. One of, the, one of the really important things about a good, solid Bible study is that we get grounded again in theology, in the accurate Christian theology of our faith, because there is a lot of bad theology out there. I'm telling you, I hear it. I'm amazed. And I hear it sometimes from people that surprises me. But turn, if you would, with me to Colossians, 2 Colossians. Colossians chapter 2. And this is a church that Paul started, and he's writing to them. And begin with me, if you would. Look at verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. Jeez, does that sound like something you would have heard on television? You know, the basic traditions of the world, uh, the basic goodness of humanity, look to within yourself, within yourself, deep within yourself, you will find the essence of yourself. God is inside of you. Go within, go within yourself. Go within yourself. What, are you kidding me? Go within myself. I've made that journey. It is not pretty. And I don't even want to know about your journey. I'm just telling you about my own journey. And you know that. You know what it is. 
You know what it is. And so anybody that gives you this basic human philosophy, we're all good, just, you know, there's some bad, but we're all good. No, we're not all good. We're all sinners. We're all sinners. And the only way we can be saved is by the blood of Jesus Christ. Don't ever, don't ever, ever, ever misunderstand that. Verse 9, for in Christ... All the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head of every power and authority. Remember, he's writing this to a church that he was responsible for founding. Turn again to, to verse 13. Now he's going to talk about some of the specifics that are going on in this church. Again, 25 to 30 years after Jesus was crucified. Verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with, his, with its regulations. Do you like that? For any of you who are confused about the Mosaic Code and its responsibility to your life, and I have again, I am again found some group of Christians who believe that they need to go back to the Mosaic Code, okay? Unbelievably, I can't believe it. Look what he says here. Having canceled, Jesus, having canceled the written code with its regulations. Can I be any more specific for you? Okay? That was against us, and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. Can you imagine? On the day that Jesus was crucified, it's as if he took all of the hundreds of, of items in the Mosaic Code, put it on the cross, and buried it with him. Because you couldn't live up to it. You were doomed. You would have failed. Nobody, no one was ever saved by that code. All that code did was point the need to a savior. It pointed the need to a savior. And now yet there are some people that want to go back to the code. And you're going to hear it again in this next lesson. You're going to hear it. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them, over the cross. And he goes on to say, again, talking about what's going on in the church. Therefore, 16, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, comma, in other words, Jewish religious festivals, you weren't celebrating certain Jewish religious festivals. You were being condemned by the church, by members in the church, and he's telling you, do not, do not judge this. Do not let this happen. Or a new moon celebration, how about that? Oh, the new moon is rising. Let's go out and worship the new moon. That's what's going on. That's what's going on. Or a Sabbath day. Now, I understand that we have brethren that think that the Sabbath day is entitled to uh, a certain high level of responsibility. But Paul is telling you here, don't put yourself in the point where you're worshiping the Sabbath day. Okay? Yes, you go to church. Yes, you worship God. But don't sit there and put the Sabbath day in a position of worship and then condemn 
and this is what it's involved, condemning others who may not do that. And again, you see how a church comes apart. And he talks about why, what this is. They, these, are a shadow of the things that were to come. Imagine that. These, all of these things, were a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Amen. All these things, shadow. There's only one reality. It's Jesus. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels. What are you talking about, Brother Paul? Worship of angels? In our church? People are worshiping angels. Yes, brother, I'm sorry to tell you. Yes, people are worshiping angels. How can that be? And do you see what happens? Do you see next? Do you see how after you, you start getting these kind of traditions in place, then what comes next? Then you're glorifying individuals. Then you're raising up saints. Then you're praying to saints. And we elevate all these elements in the church. All these elements. And in fact, every time we do it, we erode the message of Jesus Christ, including Mary. Including Mary. And so when we, we have to be very careful, you know, I mean, we, we love our brothers and sisters in other, in other uh, faiths. We love them. It's the worldwide church of God. But that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that everything that they do is consistent with, with God's word. And this isn't my opinion. What I'm giving you today is not my opinion. This is right out of scripture. You don't need me to read this. You go home and you read it. You get on your knees and you ask the Lord, the Holy Spirit, to confirm this in you, whether this is accurate or not. And, I mean, I think God will convict you because the more I read this, the more convicted I get. Uh, and, and so, it, it, to me, it's just, it's just a, a, amazing uh, about what was going on uh, in that early church. And let me just see it. Finish this, this verse up. So, the point of this whole thing was uh, such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen and the unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. Well, that's it. So you see the danger that was there in the early church and Paul's warning. He's warning the elders. Now, it gets worse because what we're going to see is uh, continuing on. Uh, and let me see where we left off in the main passage there. Even from your own number, verse 30, even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. Men will arise and distort the truth from yourselves, from your own congregations. Turn, if you would, to the epistle of John. It's the book right before Revelations. The third epistle of John. There's only one chapter. And let me just set this up for you. John is an older man at this point. He's, he's uh, well into his 80s writing this. And he has seen firsthand that the uh, Gnostic movement has infiltrated into the church. And he's seen uh, uh, so much erosion of the Christian word uh, 
that he is saddened by what he sees. And so now he writes this letter uh, to one of his uh, friends, a disciple. This is Gaius. Uh, he's writing to Gaius. And listen what he says in verse 9, if you have that there, verse 9. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will have nothing to do with us. Wait a minute. Let me see. Do I understand what's going on here? You are John, the apostle. You are one of the original 11. You are the beloved of Jesus. You, your head was on Jesus' chest. You traveled with Jesus for three years. You saw everything. You've taken charge of, of Mary. You, you have gone to Ephesus and continued the work of God. You, who are one of the pillars of the church, you've written a letter to somebody in the church, and he won't acknowledge you? Do you see what happens? Do you see? You say to me, oh, this can't happen. When I read this, I said, this is astonishing. This isn't like some disciple off the street writing a letter. This is John. And what's the problem? Diotrephes, who loves to be first. In other words, I don't really think I want you here. Because if you're here, I'm second. And I, I want to be first. Do you see spiritual pride, how it enters in? So if I come, and I love this, so if I come, I will call attention to what he is doing. And what is he doing? Gossiping maliciously about us. Not satisfied with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers. He also stops those who wants to do so and puts them out of the church. Now, is this astonishing to you? This is astonishing. Again, the first century church, the Apostle John being rejected. The letter won't be, won't be accepted. He, does, he doesn't want to be invited. He, he, the invitation will not be extended to him. And this man, Diotrephes, who wants to lord himself over this church, is ripping the church apart. He's casting people out who want to be involved in fellowship with John and those other, other disciples. And he's gossiping, malicious gossiping. So do you see the danger of how a church can get ripped apart so fast? Oh, Lord, spare us. Spare us. So be on your guard, verse 31. Be on your guard. Remember that for three years I have never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who, sanct who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. Now he's giving effectively the appropriate warnings for what someone who's going to be involved in God's work needs to be. And the first thing is, do not covet. Do not covet. This is not a business that you get into for money. This is not a work that you advance the gospel of Jesus Christ because you expect to have a big house or drive a fancy car or go on fancy vacations. That's not what this is about. He told you. He says it right here. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. 
You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. He worked. He worked. He was a tent maker. He worked the whole time he preached. It's unbelievable. Whatever he did, he sustained himself because this church was just developing. There was, there was no framework in place where they had a mighty operation, an administrative operation. It was a nascent work. And so he worked with his own hands and supported himself, meaning he was not lazy. And that's an important thing that we have to remember as Christians. We don't want to be lazy. And I, when I say lazy, I also mean not just lazy for the Lord, but lazy in the gifts that God gave you. God gave you a gift, whether it's in a business a profession. He gave it to you. Do not be lazy because you're not being a steward with what God gave you. If God gave you a gift of intellect, use your intellect. God gave you a skill with your hands. Use your hands. Use your skill. Whatever skills God gave you, do not be lazy, but use them. Use them and advance the kingdom of God. Give it back to God. Continuing on. And everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. In other words, the whole mantra of what we are, the whole point of everything that we do as Christians is to give. It's what Jesus did. He gave. Every element of his life, he gave. It wasn't to receive. It wasn't to put ourselves in a better uh, position in terms of the world, in terms of our, our finances. It has nothing to do with that. It's advancing the kingdom of God and giving. It is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him. You can imagine how they must have loved this man who they saw give it all up for God. They knew that he was going to be eventually killed. Uh, and they kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. And so what are the spiritual elements that he's emphasized to us here, which I want to talk about? Uh, and, and effectively, uh, the dangers that lie within and what we have to be worried about as a, as a church. Uh, and they are, first of all, carelessness in verse 31. Failing to stay alert, forgetting the price that others have paid, watch and remember. I mean, this is an important thing. Do not become careless. Next, shallowness in verse 32. We cannot build the church unless God is building our lives daily. And how does God build our lives daily? It's a balance between prayer and the word of God, both. You read the word of God, you worship, uh, and then you pray. And through this combination of things, God builds you up. Covetousness, verse 33, a desire for what others have. Those who covet will ultimately steal and lie. And covetousness is idolatry, because what it means is you are worshiping, you are worshiping possessions instead of the Lord Jesus Christ. Laziness. Uh, Paul earned everything that he did as a tent maker. He worked hard with his own hands. And then selfishness in verse 35. True ministry means giving and not getting. 
giving and not getting. And so at this point, uh, we're ready to study Acts 21. And so you can turn to your notes. Acts 21. And so where we are now. Acts 21, verse 1. After we had torn ourselves away from them and put out to sea and sailed straight to Kaz, the next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. Finding the disciples there, we stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. By the way, I want you to notice that. He's in Tyre for seven days. After only seven days, the relationship that they had in the Spirit was so strong that they loved this man, loved him enough that they did not want to see harm come to him, and they wanted to stop him from going to Jerusalem. But when our time was up, we left and continued on our way. All the disciples and their wives and children accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray. What a beautiful picture. All these disciples of the Lord and their wives and their children embracing him. Uh, you just see the love of God surrounding uh, the church and this man. Uh, sure, he was going to go through all kinds of, of persecutions, but God loved him so much, and the people responded. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemais, where we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for a day. Look at how short these visits are. A day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea, and by the way, you'll notice the term we. This is Luke traveling with him. Luke is with him every step of the way now. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Now, do you remember the seven? These were the, effectively the deacons that were put in charge of the early church because the widows were not being taken care of. And so Stephen and Philip and five other gentlemen, the moment right now I can't remember their names, were put in charge of taking care of those issues. And Stephen, who humbly accepted this, God used in a mighty way. Sure, Steve, you know, Stephen was appointed to be effectively an administrative leader, uh, and yet God gave him a great gift of, of, of uh, prophecy and preaching. And Stephen spoke out that day when they arrested him and gave one of the great sermons that we see in the New Testament uh, in front of the uh, council of religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and Paul was in that meeting. And after Stephen got done giving this oration in which he tied up all of the elements of the Old Testament, uh, indicating that Jesus was the very Messiah, and turned to them and said, and you crucified him. You murdered him. And at that point, the crowd rose up, rose up in anger, in anger, grabbed him and stoned him and killed him. And it, we know that Paul, it says, there's a verse there that says, and Paul consented to his death as they laid, as the, the various uh, 
individuals who were stoning Stephen laid their garments at the feet of Paul because they wanted to have the freedom to kill him more easily and didn't want to be restricted by their clothing. Can you imagine? And laid it at the feet of Paul, meaning you, Brother Paul, are part of this. Well, <laughs> you think this is an awkward moment? Think about it. You think this is an awkward moment? I'm going to stay at the house of Philip, who was probably best friends with Stephen, since he was one of the seven. And now, it's 20 years later, 20 years later, I'm going to stay at his house. Do you think that's possible in the world? Do you think it's possible to go to somebody's home today where, can you imagine, where you were involved in basically being complicit to killing your best friend, and you're going to go to their house? Do you see what the Holy Spirit does? How the Holy Spirit just erases, erases these things and elevates us in the, in the love of God. This is unbelievable. He's going to stay at Philip's house. And what's amazing here is Philip had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And this, again, this is interesting because you see in the New Testament that from time to time, we see the spiritual gifts conveyed on women. And they are significant. And again, we see this here. We don't know what their prophecies were or how God used them, but obviously these were deeply spiritual women. And so again, we, are, we have confirmation that, that God, God gives significant spiritual gifts to women. And so continuing on um, in this uh, story, uh, verse 19, uh, excuse me, verse, what is that? 10, thank you. I've got so much writing on my notes anymore, I can't even read the verses. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet, Agabus, and we've seen him before, Agabus. He, he appeared earlier. He warned of a famine. Do you remember that? Back about six or seven chapters, Agabus warned of a, of a famine coming down to Israel, which in fact did happen. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, coming over to us. And by the way, Jerusalem is about mm, 50 or 60 miles away from Caesarea, Okay. So you get a sense of what this distance is. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Now, just in case you're not getting my prophecy, I mean, I want you to realize how, how vivid this had to be. Brother Paul, the Holy Spirit has told me, you really, if you go to Jerusalem, you are going to, you're going to suffer badly. You're going to be thrown into prison. Now, he goes even better than that. He takes his belt off. He takes Paul's belt. He ties his hands, all right? He binds his hands, and he tells him that the Holy Spirit indicated to him that the owner of this belt is going to be bound just like this if he goes to Jerusalem. Wow. That kind of takes your breath away, doesn't it? Uh, and, and continuing on, when we heard this, and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem, then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. So, this is an interesting discussion point. It appears as if everybody in 
in this trip, in this missionary trip, at every stop, is warning him, don't go, don't go, don't go. This, this fellow here, this prophet, not only tells him not to go, but says, the Holy Spirit told me, give me your belt. When I take your belt, the Holy Spirit told me that the owner of this belt, this is what's going to happen to the owner of this belt when he goes. And yet, Paul goes. And so the question becomes, was Paul defying the will of God when he went? Right? That's some commentaries discuss this. Was, was he being told not to go? And I will submit to you that I, I do not believe that that is possible. I believe that Paul had such a strong vision of the Lord Jesus Christ that even though people in the church felt that he couldn't go, and I do believe that it was prim primarily because they didn't want him to suffer. And aren't we like that? I mean, we love people. We don't want to see people suffer, especially our friends in the church. We don't want you to go someplace where we know somebody, something's bad. If you had friends that felt they had to go to someplace in Africa where you know there was a high likelihood that they would be murdered, would you want them to go? Of course you would say, don't go. But that, that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit hasn't spoken to that person individually. And I can tell you that I have, I have confidence because this trip ultimately becomes very successful. He speaks to people at the highest levels of authority in government, and eventually you're going to see he gets to Rome. He gets to Rome because God wanted him to go to Rome. And he will speak to the people in the highest levels of government. And I believe that Paul understood that despite the fact that elements in the church didn't want him to go, knew he would suffer, I think it was important for him to know he would suffer. You needed to know you're going to go. This is going to happen to you. You, should need, you need full disclosure, Brother Paul. And I'm sure he weighed all this, but the Holy Spirit, it must have been a tremendously powerful vision. Can you imagine knowing that you have to serve God so powerfully that you know what's going to happen to you? You know that evil is going to befall you, but it doesn't matter because God wants you to go? Imagine, imagine what it's like to have that kind of faith. Boy, gosh, that's the kind of faith... I would like in my own life. God, I know, I, know I'm going to, I know you want me to do things. I know I'm going to go places. I know I'm going to be persecuted. I know I'm going to be vilified. I know people are going to make fun of me. But you know what, God? I'm going to stand up for you. I'm still going to do it. And some of us, we can't even open our mouth to some neighbor that we know about Jesus Christ because we're afraid that they might think we're a little weird. Right? And we can't even advance the gospel one word. I mean, we should, we should be on our knees and thank God, ask God to forgive us. I mean, really, when you look at what these giants did, knowing that he was going to face death and persecution in the worst possible way, and he still went on, it's just, it's just it's unbelievable. Verse 15, continuing on. After this, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Nason, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. And when we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers received us warmly. Now I want you to know something. He now goes to Jerusalem. And there is a huge pressing problem in the Jerusalem church. He's delivering a donation that he's gathered from around the world. Every place that he's gone, all the churches that he ministers to, people have given him donations, and he's bringing these donations 
to the Jerusalem saints who were poor, who were suffering, where famine was there. And he brings this in, but there was a pressing problem in the Jerusalem church. It was like a cancer growing on the church. And what it was, it was the same issue again and again and again, starting back to the Jerusalem council. It was the Old Testament Jewish believers who still believed that you had to become a Jew first in order to become a Christian. They were still there in place, and it was in place, and now Paul knew that there was an erosion in the church. There was, there was going to be a split. This problem is still there, even though we've spoken about how God intervened and how they said they would, they would, they would address that issue and try to address that issue, but in reality, you know, they still didn't address the issue. And so it's a growing brewing problem. And so this is what he's going to face. And so it says, when we arrived in Jerusalem, the brothers received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James. Now, James is the half-brother of Jesus. James is the titular head of the Jerusalem church, and all the elders were present. So you get this scene? All of the elders of the Jerusalem church, including James, are present at this meeting. Paul greeted him greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Can you imagine? This is what God is doing in the entire world as we advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. When they heard this, they praised God. Period. Not so quick. This is what you don't read here. Not so quick. Not so quick. Then they said to Paul, and I love this. Now you see the real heart of where people are. You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. Circle the law. Okay? What does that mean? It means the law of Moses. You understand? You see, brother Paul... We have thousands of Jews who are Christians who have accepted the way and they are all zealous of the law. Now, you know where this is going, okay? We just want you to know what we know. They have been informed. Do you like that? I just love the, the way the malicious gossipers get in and, and really infect. They have been informed. Well, in other words, it's not me. I personally wouldn't say this, brother. I love you. I know how good you are. It's not me. But I've heard they, they, tell me they have been informed. You know, can you just see this? The guy has traveled, you know, a, you know, a thousand miles through all kinds of persecutions. People are telling him, don't go, don't go. He brings, he brings the donation. He brings it to them. And the first words out of their mouth, uh, we have heard they have been informed, somebody told us, somebody told us that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses. That's a lie. That's a lie. 
He never once, ever, once told any Jew to turn away from Moses. Never, ever, ever. Telling them, telling them not to circumcise their children, that's a lie, or live according to our customs. That's another lie. He never told a Jew to do that. He told Gentiles that Gentiles did not have to do that in order to become Christians. He never said to Jews, you, you don't, you know, it's not right for you to continue to do your customs or your traditions. He himself continued to do customs and traditions. And in fact, do you remember when he brought Timothy with him on that one of his missions? I think it was the third missionary mission. He had Timothy circumcised. Do you remember this? Because Timothy's mother was a Jew, and he knew that if he brought Timothy with him uh, to be part of his missionary teams, that people would find it as a stumbling block. It's a stumbling block. You're bringing a Jew here to preach to me, and this Jew is not even circumcised? You know, this is an outrage. I can't listen to you. See, Paul would never do this. He would never do this. He would never say this. He wouldn't go there. That's not what, what Paul would be. And so, but you see how the malicious gossipers come up. And so what I'm emphasizing to you here, and we're going to cite a number of passages, and which I'm going to give you next week, which will lay out the foundation for this, where Paul, where I will be able effectively to defend Paul, not that he needs me to defend him, but he will, I will give you his writings in Corinthians, that he will talk extensively about how, what his approach was. And you'll see this is a lie, but I wanted to emphasize to you again, this is in the very highest council of saints. This is in the very highest elements of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, effectively the mother church. And these are the elders, and these very elders are going after him because effectively what they're saying is, what we really want, Paul, is we want a Jewish church. And that's the way it still was. We want a Jewish church. And we will do whatever we can to continue a Jewish church. And I'm going to tell you something. This continues until A.D. 70. And what happened in A.D. 70? Wiped out. Jerusalem, wiped out. The temple, wiped out. Now let me ask you something. And you just think about this without giving me an answer. If God knew that you had effectively raised as idolatry Jewish customs and the synagogue and the ceremonies and all the elements associated with being a Jew, you had elevated them to equal status with Jesus Christ. So that, in fact, it was eroding the church. What's one way to finish that up? Destroy the temple. Destroy the temple. Now, I don't know for a fact whether that was in God's plan. Who am I? But all I'm telling you about, this continued until the temple was destroyed. This continued. And so you have to say to yourself, God, that's, I'm astonished 
that the temple itself, that Judaism itself, that religious ceremonies and traditions could rise up and become greater than an understanding of Jesus Christ. And then I will say to you today, folks, look at organized religion in the, United, in the world, and you tell me, are there significant elements of people today who basically, when you say to them, are you really a Christian, their answer will be, well, I'm such and such. And you substitute it, okay? Whatever the denomination is, and you know what I'm talking about, well, I'm this or I'm that. Folks, irrelevant. And just like the Jews had to get over being a Jew, they had to get over worshiping the temple, worshiping the ceremony, even worshiping the Mosaic Code. The Mosaic Code that God gave Yes, God gave it to you. God gave it to you for a time until he gave you something better. It's like seeing a shadow. You saw a shadow for 2,000 years, and now you see the reality. Who would go back to a shadow? None of us. And God actually wrote, he gave, he inspired the book of Hebrews. For that very reason, the entire book of Hebrews is written for the Jewish people so that they understand, they understand you have a Savior and a Messiah. He has surpassed, he has supplanted the code. The Mosaic code now is surpassed by Jesus Christ. So we're going to close at this time and continue next week. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we're so grateful for the lessons that you've given us, for the inspiration that you've touched our hearts with, Lord. I ask you that these words be multiplied during this coming week. I ask that you also put a wall of protection around these dear people in every place and everywhere that they go, that they can continue to spread the word, Lord, in every possible way and be the salt of the world and so that they can inspire the world to let them know the true story of Jesus, our Savior. We thank you, God, for Jesus. We thank you for your mercy in extending him to us. And now, Lord, we ask you to continue this blessing in the service to come in everything that we do. We put all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.